This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome, everyone, to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so, through your favorite podcast gimmicks. Let's waste a little time because we got a lot to get to in this special edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, episode 60. we got to start off with a three count, as we always do, and let's get it going right now. And the big news story of the week had to have been, no doubt, WWE SummerSlam announcing that is going to be taking place not on a Sunday, but a Saturday. It'll be taking place from a summer destination location. I love the way they kind of somehow rhyme that up. But it's going to be really cool. And the venue is going to be revealed during the Belmont Stakes pre-race show. That's going to be this coming Saturday, June 5th. My thoughts are probably be Las Vegas. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where they could very well be doing the show. Rumors are they'll be in Denver, Colorado. Those some of the rumor in your window. I know they think they have a super show the next day, somewhere around those parts, which makes you think about it. But the tickets will go on sale Friday, June eighteenth, and they also announced several other shows as part of their twenty-five city loop, and including what's interesting is they also have super show live events on the weekend, according to their new tour dates. Pre-COVID, it looked more likely than not that the company was going away from that type of event going forward. But at least for now, it looks like these super shows, these house shows, are going to make a return, at least temporarily. And they've actually have the last scheduled event for now in this 25-city loop is going to be September 6th. I believe that's going to be right after All Out and, more importantly, on Labor Day. That's going to be in Miami from Internet Raw, then possibly going back to the Thunderdome. I don't quite know. We're just kind of going off of general observations and what we're seeing in terms of the overall schedule in this, twenty again, 25-city loop, and they've announced a good bit of shows. Now, AEW, they're going to start announcing more and more shows in the not-too-distant future, but that's an interesting one. Another interesting thing that happened over the week was rumors from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Uncle Dave, dropping a bombshell. Apparently, Nick Khan, the WWE president, saying that he has been in talks with New Japan Pro Wrestling for a potential partnership and will become the exclusive American partner for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And the talks have apparently been going on since either March or early April, unknown really how far along they are. So maybe Uncle Dave's just pulling this stuff out of his ass. And the deal would seemingly include WWE sending talent, including various top stars, to work in New Japan Pro Wrestling. The thought process is that Khan is no longer, is basically a guy that's saying it's no longer WWE versus everyone, and WWE is part of the wrestling business rather than separate from it, which is an interesting take. I'm surprised Vince hasn't just fired him because that's not exactly how he thinks. But also mentions it would keep New Japan away from other companies and would strengthen their shows. There's also the idea that WWE could lower potential talent with the promise of working with New Japan, as there are several wrestlers who grew up watching New Japan on tape or YouTube or whatever, and working there is a bigger priority for this generation than it had been in the past case in point. Somebody like a Daniel Bryan slash Brian Danielson. Because I think he would love to work a strong style with anybody right now in New Japan. You can about imagine maybe a, a crossover WWE versus New Japan with AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura main eventing it. Somewhere along those lines would be a whole lot of fun. But it seems like that is just largely rumor, innuendo, and conjecture. Especially after Tony Khan prior to AEW Dynamite, dropped a promo saying he's done more in nine days! Nine days! No, I'm just kidding. He actually was like... He seemed like he might have been a little loose of goose. Whenever he cut the promo, saying he's done more about two months th- with New Japan than he's ever done. They're going to do even more stuff. They just had a match with Yuji Nagata a few weeks ago, so it feels like this is pure rumor, innuendo, and all that great stuff. But the final bit of news has to do with AEW apparently planning expanding their roster. And he said on the AEW Unrestricted podcast earlier this week, saying, quote, there's going to be a huge expansion to our company, and I think that's where Double or Nothing comes in. Our huge signature pay-per-view, we take our quarterly events seriously. I want Double or Nothing to be one of the great pay-per-views we've done, and I think the return of crowds is going to help boost this card. He goes on to say, I also think that we have to start expanding the roster in AEW 
and there's going to be great moments and great surprises on the show, and I believe that we're also just bell-to-bell going to deliver an awesome pay-per-view, and they did. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, but with Rampage coming in, he says it's a great time to expand. That third hour is going to be huge, and they can do all kinds of expansion, and I think they're going. I think they've already signed, I believe, Bear Country and Smart Mark Sterling, and I believe those will be more possibly tier two. Because again, going back to something we've mentioned in the past, is how they even out and and do the pay grading, where it's tier one. A lot of indie wrestlers will get the pay per appearance, then tier three, and then there's the Jericho tier. The tier two is more. Oh, hey, you can be part of. You can take some independent bookings, but we get first rights on a lot of stuff and tier three is, Oh, you're signed to a contract. You're going to be part of us and you're going to go ahead and get the brick wall. So-and-so is elite a lot like Mark Henry, which again, we'll get to more of the double or nothing stuff in a little bit. And he also talks about the fact that, you know, they're working and planning ahead with TBS and TNT and going to have more programming ahead. The fact that they're getting everything kind of working is absolutely massive. Can't wait to see how, AEW expands their roster in the not-too-distant future because I think it needs to be, at least like somewhat, not necessarily a full-blown overinflation like the NWA was in the like late 90s, early 2000s type stuff. But I think there's a right way to do it. And add the fact you got an extra hour of TV on top of the presumably extra hour or so of content. You're going to be out hour to two hours of content a week. You're going to be dropping on YouTube with AEW Dark and Dark Elevation. It's going to be fun to see how it all kind of evens out and how it all works out for AEW in the not-too-distant future. But this is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. We're going to talk about WCW Nitro 25 years ago. Not quite on that day, but it's definitely an interesting episode of Nitro. All right, this is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Anyone who's listened to this podcast probably knows what happened on May 27th of 1996, 25 years ago, nearly to the day. And it's WCW Nitro when Scott Hall invaded WCW and fired the first shot in what was WCW versus NWO. And this is something I was like looking forward to and salivating over. There's something else I got I'm thinking about down the pipeline, but I might just stick towards the twenty fifth anniversary of the New World Order if, you know, Peacock actually decides to do what I've been wanting them to do for months. That is adding more SmackDown episodes, but we'll save that for later. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time work talking about some of the inner workings and the backstories heading into the show like I've done with several others. Instead, I'll just kind of rattle off some quick hitters from what I saw in terms of the headlines that happened on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Again, I've mentioned this before. Shout out to DA Price 84, excuse me, the Price 82 over on Reddit for all the recaps that he's put together from his, from the observers over the years. And we're going to take back, they're going to look back one of probably one of the wilder weeks in wrestling history. This all started on the Sunday because In Your House was on pay per view. And it was just absolutely insane because you had the match, the show get started. It was off air on pay per view for 25 minutes before Lawler and Vince came on telling viewers to stay tuned due to a power outage at the pay per view. And they, they would have matches continue in the arena. It would air on the 528 replay, which would be on the Tuesday. Back when they used to have like specific dates for replays of different pay-per-views, that way they could wind up making a good bit of money off of it if you weren't already kind of popping the tape in and hitting the record button like you did back in those days. But the power stayed off for so long that when it returned, they only had time for the main event, which was Shawn Michaels versus the British Bulldog. And while the power was out, they used battery-operated cameras and used a generator to barely light the ring so even people in the crowd could barely see the matches that were going on inside the squared circle. No intros, no entrances, nothing. And none of the footage was really able to be used due to the lighting. They redid the show on Tuesday Night Live in a different city for the replay. I'm assuming, I could be completely wrong here, but I'm assuming that would have been originally planned for a raw taping, which was absolutely kind of cool. Meanwhile, Looking at the indie scene, or should I say more the territory slash developmental world, the USWA is strongly leaning towards having their Memphis shows move from the Mid-South Coliseum to the big flea market. This was talked about a couple months ago, according to Dave Meltzer, saying that the shows have been consistent money losers, so it just makes sense to move to a smaller venue. And a young Dwayne The Rock Johnson debuted under the name Flex Cavana at the latest USWA show, which it still is amazing, the fact they're actually using that name 
and apparently it was a good enough idea to go ahead and let it be known on the USWA's programming that he was called Flex Cavani, team with Brian Christopher in a match against Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. And according to Meltzer, he says, Cavani has only had about half a dozen matches, but word is he has shown a lot of potential. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that he wound up probably being the biggest standout in the history of the USWA. Then we get to another big story. Brian Pillman had a meeting with Vince McMahon and was supposed to be with Eric Bischoff soon after the meeting took place. But word is Pillman and WCW aren't agreeing on money, and it's looking likely that Pillman is heading to WWF. And he'll continue to do promos in ECW, and word is WWF has agreed him to work a match there with Shane Douglas after he's healed from that car wreck injury, which you heard a lot about in Dark Side of the Ring. But the fact that he was able to kind of like kayfabe the whole thing with WCW, it's still an amazing story in and of itself. And they wanted to wrap up the angle they've already started. But it never happened because it took Pillman way longer than planned to heal from those like gnarly injuries. But the other thing that happened, I think obviously we need to get to Monday Night Raw as we're approaching King of the Ring 1996, probably one of the most pivotal King of the Ring pay-per-views of all time. And they had a couple qualifying matches. The first one was the Ultimate Warrior. God, the Ultimate Warrior. We're going to talk about him a lot more, I think, in next week's podcast because I've still got to watch Dark Side and I've still got to watch all the way through of the A&E biography because it's safe to say both those had two very different stories. But it was Ultimate Warrior fighting Goldust, a double countout in a non-title match when Goldust tried to leave ringside and was attacked in the aisle by the Warrior. After the bout, Jerry Lawler tried to retrieve the director's chair for Marlena, but the Warrior grabbed it instead and destroyed it in the ring. Absolutely insane, the fact that I keep forgetting the Ultimate Warrior was still involved in WWE at the time, that late in 1996. I thought he would have already been out because 96 was whenever he had the match with Triple H where he no-sold the pedigree and immediately buried the living hell out of him. Then again, it was not a great year for the young Hunter Hearst Helmsley whenever you just look at the entire thing. Then you have the tag team champions of Smoking Guns with Sonny at ringside. They took on Skip and Zip. Boy, oh boy, the body donors. In a non-title match, and the minimum of a flying body press by Skip put Bart Gunn on top for the win, made him look like an absolute geek. Then he had another qualifying match between Vader, Jim Cornette at ringside, obviously, and Ahmed Johnson. They were facing off, and Vader pinned Ahmed Johnson after... Owen Hart, who was doing guest commentary, came off the top rope with a double axe handle using his arm cast to hit Ahmed, and then Vader covered him following a spine bust. Oh, my God, this was such a good match. And I, I was blown away just reading back at this. I was looking back at it, and I wound up watching just that match itself, and it was pretty good. Cornette got chased backstage by Ahmed, and then he returned late in the contest, and his distraction allowed Hart to interfere. Then later on, he won the match. And that Ahmed was taking backstage on a stretcher and was revived by Goldust eventually, who used mouth-to-mouth. And this was Ahmed's actually first-ever TV loss. That was that Monday Night Raw was completely insane, to say the very, very least. But besides that, let's get to the show with, on this show in particular, 1996. It was taking place live from the Macon Coliseum in Macon, Georgia. And this was a really good one in front of a packed crowd. It was actually the first ever two-hour edition of Monday Nitro, and it's headed up by Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco. I remember every time they showed Larry, he didn't get this at the time, but a few years later at Thunder, where I was there at the Cage Dome growing up, all you just heard, Larry, Larry, Larry. And the crowd went nuts for Larry Zabisco anytime they showed him on TV. And they went live, and the hype of the card, and it's going to be giant facing the former earthquake now known as shark which it's still the dumbest thing i've ever heard but they're gonna be facing off for the wcw world heavyweight title they also hype up a lot of other matches but we open up the show with of all things i was blown away right when i saw this so all of a sudden here i hear the music start my oh oh yeah it's gonna be american males time american males american males american males. And they're clapping they're having themselves a good time I, I just absolutely laugh every time. I unironically love this song. And if you want to see in the Cajun Strong Style Twitter, we tweeted out just American males as many times as possible without going over the character limit. I love this. It is completely ironic. It's unironic love of 
the American Males theme song. And also, Scotty Riggs looks like Ethan from H3, H3 Productions. It's still something that boggles my mind, but hearing the theme song just got me amped up. And their entrance was really fun, too. And then it's Ric Flair, Arn Anderson come out next. Oh, boy. This match just rules just based off the combatants itself. Woman, Miss Elizabeth, accompanied them to the ringside. And at one point, I think Larry Zbysko has been reading his dictionary a lot, like Cody Rhodes does with his promos. He's all of a sudden he calls Arn Anderson an endomorphic human being. What? That was a weird, weird call, but okay, I, I, I'm with it. And the whole time, like early on, it's Arn Anderson and Flair just dominating. They manhandle him early on. You got to forget that you know the American Males were tag team champions not too long ago at this point in time, and they're hyping up a match with Mongo and Kevin Green against Arn and Flair at the Great American Bash. They hyped this up for like ninety percent of the show. You keep talking about Kevin Green. How he plays for the Carolina Panthers, like Zabisco was like, Carolina's a football team. <laughs> and he's just like scoffing off the whole thing of it. I was, I was like, what the hell's going on here? And it's also so weird to watch wrestling from back in the old days after you kind of, your brain's been conditioned, especially in modern wrestling, having to go ahead and do, you know, these commercial breaks where you go picture in picture, especially with uh, like a, a match like this. You think that, you know, whenever you have, I'm sure if, you were able to do picture-in-picture picture back in the late 90s, a Ric Flair match would always have the picture-in-picture because that's your big star. And you start off that with a heater, and it was just it was weird, but I honestly liked it because, again, once it goes picture-in-picture, picture, I do not care what happens. Unless they have like a match, unless they make me convinced that things are actually going to happen during the break, I'm not going to watch it. Just full stop. The males had control as they went to break, but the veterans dominated when they came back. Tony and Larry at one point are drinking champagne giving, given to them by a woman and Miss Elizabeth from the VIP section. And Zabisco mentions that's Dom Perignon, which I, I, I pop for that reference in and of itself. Flair gets into it with Randy Anderson, who shoves him a few times. It's also great to think, like, back then wrestlers and referees both had huevos to where, like, the refs would actually fight back instead of just, like, Wagging the finger. Like, you never see that now. Like, you never get to see... It's like whenever you go watch, like, the 2000s Raws with Earl Hebner and Triple H, where Triple H would shove him, then Earl Hebner would shove him back, all that stuff. That actually makes me think... It makes me believe these are legitimate authority figures instead of geeks that get, like, that fall over when, like, a gust of wind hits them. And that gives Riggs a chance to get the hot tag on Bagwell. He looked great. But the ref kept getting distracted in the final moments. The heels got the edge. Bagwell at one point had a pin, but women ran her interference, and Arn dropped Bagwell with the DDT, and Flair just nonchalantly drapes his arm over him for the one, two, three. And again, I think this was a really solid TV match, especially in 1996. But I was more blown away about the fact that they got the American Males got so much offense that they had a post-match interview, and I couldn't stop laughing at Ric Flair saying. He learned something over the weekend during this Memorial Day weekend saying skyrockets in flight afternoon delight. And it was like, what the hell is going on? Flair is going crazy. This is awesome. I love, I again, I love Ric Flair, especially like once we got towards like 97, 98, when Ric Flair completely lost all sense of reality. This was like towards the beginning of that as well. Honestly, loved it. Then we got a workout montage with Mongo and Kevin Green, just two bros hanging out getting ripped, getting shredded, and I loved it. I also loved the way they had, like, that old-school, like, 90s. When you, remember when you watch, like, ESPN2 and you'd see those, like, fitness shows and they'd show it and it'd basically would be, like, random, like, frame by frame and the video would be slower than the actual audio? That was really cool. I honestly love that. A whole, there's a lot of stuff I loved from that show. But it ends with Mongo saying, what's you going to do when Mongo and Kevin Green run wild on you? And I absolutely just popped. For every bit of that. Steve Dahl makes his ring to take on the Mauler, which is Colonel Robert Parker's new pet project, who's actually Mike Enos the entire time. And this is a really, like, it's a solid match, solid enough. But there was, like, one moment where it, like, threw me off guard because you never see this anymore. Like, pro wrestling has completely forgotten about the old Bill Watts days. If you don't know what I'm talking about, back then with Bill Watts, he used to book matches where, and he'd have, like, rules. And the rules were, you know, they had to, it was insane just to see some of the stuff that he had. 
like some of the rules they had. For instance, they couldn't, you know, fly over the top rope. That would be a disqualification. Wrestling outside the ring is discouraged. Using the barricade and ring post is forbidden. Automatic disqualification. If a person's thrown over the top rope or does a top rope move, they're disqualified. No more 25-match marathon TV tapings. No blood, no steroids, none of that. Fraternization between heels and babyfaces is not acceptable. Like All the stuff that he did back in Mid-South, he did this in WCW. And the Ten Commandments were still utilized a lot. I was like, what is going on here? It was like never really saw that before or since. And like they had a spot where they both went over the top rope with a crossbody, and Shivani clarifies that isn't going to be a disqualification because of the fact that it was more force that caused momentum that caused them to go over the top rope. And I was like, wait a minute. Are they using Bill Watts rules? Like what is going on? Like I never noticed that before in pro wrestling when I was growing up. I think that was largely gone away by that point. But it further proves how much of a joke, you know, the the, the Bill Watts era of WCW was because it was still trying to be old school hokey and old school stuff like that. Which, mind you, it can be great, but at the same time, you're in a different era of wrestling. The wrestling world is starting to change in a big way. Why are we continuing to use something that was going on in 92 with Watts and Hurd running things? Which, by the way, Hurd's a complete idiot with the whole Ric Flair thing. I'm just going to go ahead and say that right out the front street. Maybe I talk about that more down the road. But they come back from break, and just as they do, the match doesn't matter anymore because Scott Hall is walking through the crowd, then goes over the barricade, and he grabs the microphone. Everybody gets out the ring immediately, which is like, what? Like, couldn't y'all have tried going after him? And then Hall beats him up. The match is eventually thrown out, but he basically cuts his iconic promo saying that if WCW wants him, wants a war, he'll give him a war. And he calls out Eric Bischoff when he shows up because he's got a big challenge for WCW. And then we get to DDP taking on Sergeant Craig Pittman. So we go from like an a amazing moment to DDP versus Sergeant Craig Pittman, a guy who I barely remember. And Teddy Long is his manager. I popped for that. And Teddy looked like he was a little bit thicker than he's been when we see him as a SmackDown GM. But seeing him as like a manager is always weird to me. DDP looks so different as well compared to what we wind up getting. Just a couple years later, he's got the green, these like neon green pants, neon green jacket, everything. He just looks so different compared to what we get with the more grungy, like, yo, it's me, it's me, it's DDP. But you still got, like, the network dub song, which is almost like, you know, smells like Teen Spirit, but it's weird. Because he didn't really use that. And this is a solid match. Starts off with these two having a push-up contest. And again, I'm going to say this, and I'll mention it again later. The USMC vet having a match on Memorial Day is so corny, it's ridiculous. But also the fact you have DDP actually winning over the USMC vet was even more just like, wait, what did they just do? It's a lot like how we saw on Double or Nothing, which, again, we'll talk about in a few. I couldn't stop laughing at it. But it starts off with them in a push-up contest. Pittman does a few one-arm push-ups, which looked half-hearted. DDP goes for a kick. Pittman dodges it, falls flat on his backside. And DDP eventually shoves long into the barricade, then hits the diamond cutter on Pittman for the three count. Overall, like, this match was bad. I don't think it was because of the fact that you got, um, you know, obviously. I think it sucks more because of the fact that it was Craig Pittman involved in the match. And it was like a three, four-minute match, which is what WCW was at the time. A lot of these, like, four or five match cards, and they were very quick. And then they recap the whole Macho Man Ric Flair storyline in a video package. Then they show Shark backstage typing up his WCW title match to start off hour number two, which is led by Eric Bischoff and Bobby Heenan on commentary. Bischoff mentions they won't dignify Scott Hall's promo early in the night with a response as they go to the WCW World Heavyweight title match. And the thing we get once you open up hour number two is completely nuts. And this is actually Sting's second title reign because for, don't forget that he won the title back at Halloween Havoc 1995 thanks in large part to the Yeti, which is insane in and of itself. And he actually, Giant won the title against Flair at Super Bowl. 
So this is going back from April. He winds up losing the title a few months later to Hogan, but we'll get to that further down the road. And uh, I couldn't stop laughing at John Tenta. The whole time he's the shark, thankfully he's sticking to the gimmick where he basically dyed his beard where it looked like he had shark teeth, which I laughed at. And this is a pretty bad match. It's not because of Giant or anything. It's a four-minute match for the world title, and it was largely a squash because Big Show dominated half of it. He retained the title after a choke slam, and after the match, Big Bo Rogers comes out and shaves Shark bald. The, the former John Tenta, former Earthquake, shaved bald at the end of the match, further making him look even more like a geek at this point in time. He had already gotten kicked out of the Dungeon of Doom and everything. We don't hear much about the Dun- Dungeon of Doom after this because, well, we got the NWO there, the big threat coming to WCW. Then we get to the TV title match with Lex Luger defending against Max with two X's. He didn't have a lot of great one-liners here. I can't really rattle them all off, but he had some good stuff, especially towards Max. This is a pretty standard big man fight. At one point, Bischoff gets distracted and says if he wants to talk, referring to Scott Hall, he can wait until the end of the hour, which is going to be the end of the show. Luger hits Max with the forearm and hits a power slam on him. He locks in a torture rack. Randy Anderson jumps around the ring like crazy. He's never seen this done before, and he retains an okay match. Still, it's a five-minute match. Is what it is. Cuts a promo on the Giant for putting him through a table two weeks ago, and they're going to be facing off at the Bash for the World Heavyweight title once again. That's going to be a, That was a... It's going to be a lot of fun to see those two square off. Then we get to Bobby Walker and Brad Armstrong. Bobby Walker wins the match really quick. Here's the finish. Walker sets up a big drop kick but slips up. Like He jumps from the second rope to the top rope, which if he had nailed that, he would have been a, like a huge star, and this match would have been made a lot better. But he slips up, but he manages to right his balance, right the ship, hits the drop kick for the win. That was weird, amazing, everything in between. How some of this couldn't have been a match on like WCW Saturday night, not the flagship show that is Monday Night Nitro. Then we get to a match between two guys who I love, and I think it's mainly because I love the hell out of Alex Wright growing up. Das Wunderkind was so cool. Berlin was even a cool character that I somewhat enjoyed, but I think it's more Alex Wright. Das Wunderkind is dancing his taunt all the time. I used to play as him all the time in WCW, NW Revenge. But it's him and Lord Steven Regal. I've enjoyed more as I've gotten older and realized how great of a wrestler, comedy guy he is. So damn good. And these two are really good in the ring as well. It's not just you know the gimmicks that they have. They put together a really good match inside the 20 by 20 squared circle. And he puts over his opponent well for a good chunk of the match. But Regal gets the win. Basically, Wright went for the monkey flip, but Regal stays on the corner. And Wright just lands so hard on that mat. Regal rolls him up for the one, two, three. Best match of the night so far, but it's more because of the fact that the bar was so low. Then again, that's 1996 wrestling in a nutshell. Is what it is. Then we get to the main event of the night, and it is Sting versus Scott Steiner. And Steiner, this is before he dyed his hair blonde and joined the NWO. No, this is like, Still got a full head of hair type stuff. He looked, like, yoked. He had so much ability. It really shows how much better he was then than he is now. Oh, my God. So good. Such good stuff. These two had a really good contest all the way through. And then at one point, Steiner tries to go for a suplex to the outside. Misses. He winds up just falling out of the ring. And then hits Steiner with a suplex. He tries to go for it. Luger breaks it up, throws Steiner back in the ring. Luger and Rick Steiner, who dressed like he just got back from vacation, shows Luger. It becomes a full-blown brawl, match thrown out, no contest. And that ends the in-ring action. Scott Hall shows up at the announce desk and says that this is where the big boys play. What a joke. He challenges WCW to a three-on-three match. Doesn't necessarily say it, but it's implied. We all know how this whole thing goes. As the storyline progress, progresses, excuse me, and says, you know, we are taking over. Now, who's the we? Well, we're going to have to find out next week on WCW Nitro, which we might talk about next week on the podcast. We'll see how I feel about it. But outside of one good match, this really sucked. Like, overall, WCW at this point, it wasn't, like, god-awful bad. But comparatively speaking, just in terms of 
what kind of stuff I like to watch. This fell well short of the market. It started making me realize like WCW was wrestling was never good until like the late nineties where we started to have a little more freedom, a little more liberties. We started to see more and more like actually good wrestlers versus oh wait, these big dudes just going at it and throwing each other on the mat. I feel like sometimes wrestling sucked back in the day, but got so much better not too far down the road. I think case in point, you look at that, and you look at AEW 20 years later, safe to say that the newer company is so much better. All right, going from relatively bad wrestling to some really fantastic stuff with AEW Double or Nothing. First off, I didn't even bother watching the Friday Night Dynamite, more because of the fact that I was a complete idiot and didn't realize that the recording, the DVR on my TV was going to tape the Road to Double or Nothing show that aired on Saturday. Whenever I'd go ahead, because I usually try and watch, especially on a non-pay-per-view week, and when I'm not too busy, I'll wind up watching AEW, NXT, all the stuff that I normally would watch over the course of a week on a Sunday. But that wasn't the case this week. I was wanting to watch you know, the end of NXT, which I was going to talk about, but I feel like I've got like... 20 pages of notes. I'm going to try and just get to double or nothing right off the gate. So I can get to watch the Friday Night Dynamite show, but I enjoyed some of the highlights that I saw, namely Sting with the, the Sting masks and everything in between. Just so different. And the crowd was just so good, but it got so much better on Sunday with double or nothing. We'll start off with the buy-in match, and the pre-show match is something that I think you need to see. And that's for the NWA Women's World Championship Rio taking on Serena Deeb, who's defending her title. And Rio, the second she came out, absolutely massive pop. So over like Rover. And mind you, both these two are built as faces, but as the match progresses, Deeb is the clear heel. After a solid opening exchange, Deeb absolutely just slaps a taste out of her mouth as she goes for a handshake. And she's established the heel. Both of them got huge pops before the end of the ring. And they also mentioned Rio. Apparently, she has moved her base of operations to America, so now I think you'll assume she'll be a bigger part of the women's division going forward in 2021 and beyond because she was absolutely one of the faces of the division, if not for COVID. I'm sure that would have changed in a big way. Then we get to, later on in the match, Rio's firmly in control, but Deeb kept trying to lock in the Serena lock fully. Deeb continued to attack the legs throughout the match. At one point, she was taking liberties, and I like the fact that what she did as a heel character in this match, because she's not a, a true blue heel like we see in pro wrestling nowadays where she's 100%, but you need to have a face and heel in this match. And she did a great job in that role. Because she wound up locking in a hold, broke it up at four, then locked it in again, got to four again, locked it in one more time. And it was all to avoid the DQ, but also take a lot of liberties and hit a rope-assisted neckbreaker that looked great. At one point, Deeb locked in an inverted gory special on Riho and mentioned her as a woman of a thousand holds on commentary. I think Dean Malenko might have had a lot to do with that part of the match. Then they go to the top rope, and Rio pushes off Serena, hits a double stomp, but can't capitalize due to a dragon screw earlier that affected her knee, and that continued to be a big part of the storyline. Deeb had a really great front chancery octopus hold spot a little bit later on. Rio turned it into a Northern Light suplex for two. Not Alicia Fox good, but still pretty damn solid. The next thing comes, Rio goes for the double stomp again near the apron. Deeb dodges and gets a two count. Deep hits the power bomb. Two count again. Goes for the detox. Rio fights back with a dragon suplex. Double stomp to the shoulder blades. The knee still affecting her. She goes for the double knees, but Deeb locks in a submission hold. Rio reaches the ropes. Deeb hits detox again, tries for it again. Rio rolls her up for the 2.9. Then Deeb just bashes her knee into the canvas, locks in the serenity lock, one, two, and that's it. I retain the title. She taps out. It's all over. This was a three-and-a-half Lincoln Boudin type match. And for the pre-show, this may be one of the best pre-show matches I have ever seen outside of the WLC match, but I think that was more of an ironic taste. This was a master class of putting together a solid match from start to finish with two women. 
and it's going to get your secondary women's title, and they made it look like it was something worth fighting for. Something I think AEW and WWE maybe miss on from time to time, and Riho definitely looked great in her first match, back with the company in a good while. And the fans throughout the night just were fan-freaking-tastic. Fan Next up, Hangman Page versus Brian Cage. Not in a steel cage, no Diamond Dallas Page, a special referee. Just Page and Cage squaring off for the second time. And this was a phenomenal match. First off, Cage walks out looking like a cosplay Terminator gimmick. At first I thought it was tinfoil, but no, it was actually a whole thing. I believe he wore that at T- in Impact Wrestling as well as at TNA. No, he was part of Impact. And he dominated early on. Got a little too cocky, though. And he wound up hitting a crossbody, but was caught midair. And then Page, excuse me, Cage set a page for a powerbomb into the ring post. That looked rough. Great work out of the both from the opening contest. Both fly out of the ring with a clothesline, but Page is just getting so over. The crowd is amped. Page hits the moonsault to the outside. He went for a hurricane runner from the top, but Cage stopped him. Looked like he was about to go for a powerbomb. But Hangman still got what he wanted with the momentum and hit the Hurricane Rana. Cage at one point wound up going, look like for an Avalanche drill claw, but Page gets out of it. He tried to hit the dead eye, but the size of Cage was too much. Couldn't really get it in. Spinning neck breaker by Cage for two, which the speed of that looked brutal. Looked like Cage spun about two rotations. Uppercut to Enziguri. And then Cage goes for a German suplex. Page gets out of it. Superplex to the outside. Crowd remains hot as all get out. Page hitting Cage with an F5. Oh, my God. This match ruled. One hell of an opener. Hook hits. Hook and Ricky Skaggs hit the ring. Try and help, but Cage doesn't want the help. And that gives Adam Page the opportunity to hit the buckshot Larry to win the contest. Three and a half Lincoln Boudet match. So damn good. Really good opener. Page officially on the road to All Out, going to be fighting for the title, at least that's what we think is going to happen. He's not the number one contender yet, but he's going to be soon enough Adam Page over Brian Cage, but now it's all about what happens next. Is Brian Cage fully turning babyface because all the members of Team Taz argue. Cage walks out, more tension in the stable, so I think the big man, Swolverine, is going to turn babyface before long, and I can't wait to see how that's going to go. Meanwhile, the AEW Tag Team titles are on the line. John Moxley, Eddie Kingston, who completely saw the crowd get in glue the second Wild Thing started. They were singing along to it and everything. I love fans so much. They were taking on the Young Bucks for the AEW World Tag Team titles. Moxley and Kingston attack the Bucks while their streamers flow into the ring, which I pop for. And the match didn't even start. They basically had a big walk and brawl. Mosh back. Mox backed a drink. Mox bashed a drink, there we go, into his head like he was Sandman. That was awesome. Cutler gets taken up by Mox pretty early with a nice double-team maneuver. I can't remember what they called it off top, but they only hit it once in the match. And it finally starts, Ed Kingston, Nick Jackson are your two. And by the way, both of them have beards, and that seems like just a cursed image in and of itself. I was like, what is going on here? Cutler gets taken out pretty early by Mox and Kingston with a nice double-team maneuver. Again, mentioned that earlier. But it was a war between both of them. Kingston was kept out of the ring for a good bit. Mox kept things under control. At one point, Carl Anderson walks out on the ramp for a distraction. And Gallows tries to take out Kingston, but Eddie stops him dead in his tracks. Then Kaz pops up as the elite hunter now, because he's hunting after the elite, after what they did to SEU, causing them to break up now. Kaz has a big story. Looking forward to seeing how that goes. Young Bucks take firm control after they spray Mox with the aerosol spray and then bop him on the head. To bust them wide open. It's like, how did they manage to bust them that bad with a aerosol spray can? In terms of like, if we're being kayfabe, we're not knowing how things go with a, obviously, the big spots that they do in pro wrestling where you see a razor blade. No, they it looked like he obviously bladed, but it was like, that felt kind of whack. But they wound up hitting the indie taker to the outside, all young bucks. Mox finally gets the tag a little bit later on. Kingston, hot tag, house of fire here. And the Bucks attack Kingston's knee, which is the big storyline throughout the match. Get a really good two count off of an assisted sliced bread all the way back and forth. These two are just going at it. 
hitting them with everything. In fact, they have a Dior's Day device where it's a Doomsday device, but Moxley's got the Young Bucks Dior's and hits them with it, which honestly I kind of popped for. There were so many cool things that happened all throughout here. And Moxley had an amazing hope spot where they go for the super kick party. Moxley kicks out at one. He's hulking up. He's getting crazy. Almost gets the win for his team. But then the Young Bucks retain the tag team titles after they hit him with four BTE triggers. Mind you, they, some of them looked soft. But damn, if that wasn't like a hard-hitting, amazing match from start to finish with some really cool like bumps throughout the match. It really showed how much I think that the Young Bucks are the best tag team, bar none. I'm giving this four and a half links to Bune, a fun, probably the second best match of the night, at least in my opinion. I'll get to your opinions in a little bit because we do it every pay-per-view. We want your thoughts on what was the best match and what your overall thoughts were on the show. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. And I was intrigued to see some of your answers. We'll talk about those in a little bit. We'll get back to the Cajun Strong Style podcast momentarily with the Casino Battle Royale. Now let's get to the Casino Battle Royale. Paul White came out on commentary for this match and made you think that he was going to be the mystery opponent. They kind of teased it, at least somewhat, the Joker card. They teased at least somewhat during the buy-in. And Cage comes out first as he drew a club, and the rest of the clubs are Matt Seidel, Powerhouse Hobbs, Dustin Rhodes, and Max Caster cutting another great promo. Talk about what Christian, Christian Cage last time he was over was when he had an edge. I pop for that. Then we get Matt Seidel. He gets tossed out by Caster shortly thereafter. And then after a low blow, Caster lands on the entrance ramp a little bit after. Let's say he tweaked his knee, and he's gone. I think we got eliminated by Dustin. The next group is the Diamonds. That's Mark, Matt Hardy, Isaiah Caster. You try and mug Preston Vance, but Vance is having none of it. And he actually powerbombs Cassidy, and it looked rough. Nick Camarado is next, and then Serpentico is next. And a pop for that, add the fact that Luther just threw him in the ring, and then Serpentico got, got thrown out like five seconds later. So good. Add the fact that I've seen Serpentico wrestle in the ring. He could put together, like, I'd say damn near five Lincoln Bude matches for me. Case in point, this one. Really good stuff. Rhodes threw out Camarado and Vance. And Camarado hit Rhodes with the cowbell, which sets up a bull rub match that's going to happen on, in five days with the Friday Night Dynamite at 10-9 Central which I'm going to watch that one because I want to have a road to interrupting anything. Then Rhodes gets eliminated soon after on that. Brian Pillman, Griff Garrison, Cole Cabana, Anthony Bones, and Pentagon, who is the Joker baby. He, he drew the hearts. And just before the countdown struck zero, Matt Hardy and Christian stared down at each other. And they had like a wide shot, which was kind of weird, but whatever. Isaiah Cassidy chop blocks him. The clock strikes zero. And this is just, it gets crazy. Isaiah Cassidy tosses out Cabana quickly. Bowens gets thrown out right after. Hobbs stayed out of the ring for a good while after. He got hit with a kill switch he sold for a long time. Griff Garrison got eliminated, but no one really saw it live, which was the big downside here for this match. Like They could not keep up with the eliminations. And it was like, why couldn't you have somebody say, like, ready this one, take this one. We need to find somebody that knows how to produce a real show. Is what it is. But the final suit is Jungle Boy, Aaron Solo, Mark Quinn, who helps eliminate, you know, Brian Pillman and Jr. a little bit after. Aaron Solo, Evil Uno, and Lee Johnson is the final man out before the wild card. Solo and Johnson knocked out quickly. Makes a lot of sense. Hobbs and Cage get back into the ring. Hobbs eliminated by Christian. And it looked like it's every last bit of him to throw him over the top rope. Hardy and Private Party have the numbers advantage, and they tee off on Jungle Boy and Christian. And then comes out the Joker. It's Leo Rush. I know everybody like on Twitter and Discord, all of the servers I follow, they were going nuts just hating on this so much. Here's the thing. I love this because it's a surprise that honestly made the match a little bit better. If it was somebody like, let's say it was Paul White, I would have hated that so much. 
Because in fact, I don't want to see him make his entering debut in a battle royal. But somebody like this that can work well with anybody, Leah Rush crushed it here. He had a really good move set, flew it throughout. He gets eliminated by Matt Hardy like not long after, after while well, trying to eliminate Private Party because they're doing the whole silly string gimmick, but nothing doing. Final five is Private Party, Hardy, Christian, and Jungle Boy. We basically reset back to where we were. Private Party goes for the silly string again, but Jungle Boy super kicks one of them. Christian knocks out the other. Really great here. Christian teases an alliance with Hardy, but throws him out anyway. So the final two is Christian and Jungle Boy. And people talk about some of the best like final twos in like a Battle Royal or a Royal Rumble. And I think Shawn Michaels' Undertaker is still the best. This one may be one of the best I've ever seen. Because the fans go crazy here. And the finish is Cage tries to throw Jungle Boy into the post after he gets out of a kill switch. Jungle Boy winds up swinging around the post. Cage tries to do what looks like a, like a pile driver. And this is the pile driver. A lot like, I think it's called the Heat Seeker. That is MGF's finish. But he's not able to get it. So Jungle Boy basically flips him over with a back body drop. And Cage is out. And Jungle Boy is your winner of the Casino Battle Royale. I don't think anybody saw that coming. And I love it. Four links of Boudin, hands down, and a star is born. Where I knew he was a star in the making, but the way that crowd put him over all throughout the match, the second he came out, everybody's singing the song after the match, they're showing the fans. The fans are losing their ever-loving mind over this, and I loved it. And again, nothing against Christian Cage. Would have loved to have seen him win it. That felt like the direction they were going to go. But giving us, you know, Christian, excuse me, Jungle Boy and Kenny in two weeks' time. That is so damn good. And I can't wait to see it. Best surprise the night Bardo was Jungle Boy winning. Yes, would have loved to seen somebody else be the Joker. Maybe Moose, maybe Sammy Callahan. He teased it. A lot of others could have been in that spot, but this worked extremely well, at least in my mind. Then we get to the next match on the card. Anthony Agogo taking on Cody Rhodes. First off, Rhodes looks like he just got off the Mayflower with his attire. And he got rid of the Snoop Dogg remix. So, win. I like this. Rhodes immediately went for the arm of Agogo immediately. Did Dustin's whole gimmick with the drop-down uppercut. All that stuff. Agogo wound up hitting an Olympic slam, which looked great. A lot of the fact they called it an Olympic slam. Big boot to... From the governor and Rhodes fought back, hit the cattle mutilation on. I was like, what the hell's going on? I've never seen him do that. And Brian Danielson is probably furious at this. Or not, because he's not low key getting mad at somebody stealing black magic. Which honestly I've never seen him do until he brought it up that Seth Rollins supposedly stole his finish. I never really saw him do that, mind you. I didn't watch watch much Ring of Honor when it was actually started, but apparently that's what he used to use. I just remember more for the double stomp that used to be the win, used to be the finish all the time in TNA. Agogo really looked good throughout this match. At one point, QT gets a cheap shot on Rhodes. Arn grabs a chair to go after QT, but nothing happens. Then Anthony Gogo hits a fireman carry power slam, and he got cut open above his eye, and it looked rough. And again, he actually is partially blind, so that was a big storyline as well in this. He starts throwing wild punches. Rhodes takes over with a bulldog. Cody starts throwing some haymakers with him and a Cody cutter for two. Then he reset, throws him on the top rope, but a go-go lands a big punch to send him crashing to the floor. Anthony goes back up to the top for an amazing frog splash. I'd never seen like this guy do a high spot. Never really saw this guy wrestle a match outside of you know just the jab to the gut. That's the end of it. No, this was straight up him going up there and like frog splash. I think it's a two count. Rhodes locks in the figure four. A go-go knocks him down with a solid jab for a two count. Never saw somebody actually do that, but I liked it. It was so cool. And then, you know, crossroads tease followed by the gut punch by a go-go, a brutal looking like Shoryuken uppercut and Rhodes goes down at a heap. But he's in the ropes, so the match continues, which was a great little ending here. And I hated the fact that Cody won the match 
Because at the end of the day, I think uh, Gogo deserved it. But, you know, might as well just bury the whole factory. He's already buried QT Marshall, beyond belief, the leader of the group. Why not destroy the heavy two while we're at it and have, you know, Dustin Rhodes beat Camarado in the bull rope match on Friday night just to basically kill off any momentum these guys have dead in their tracks. And Cody wins with the vertebraker, which looked amazing, especially against such a big guy. This is a three links of Boudin match. I just can't, I can't get into Cody anymore. I, I get it. He is the EVP of the company. He's going to get over in a lot of matches. But damn it, this feels, I don't think Triple H esque. I know people are comparing him. Honestly, this feels more Hogan esque. Getting over despite the fact that you didn't need to get over. Just hated a lot of that stuff that happened in this match. And hopefully those things change not too far down the road because it's definitely becoming a big problem. All right, when we come back, we'll get into the rest of the card for AEW Double or Nothing 2021. That includes the big women's title match, probably my favorite of the night. Next, we get to the TNT Championship match. Lance Archer taking on Miro. And this is just a hoss fight, plain and simple. Apparently, they had a angle before the show during the fan fest where Miro basically dropped Jake Roberts with a gut punch, and Archer was just absolutely pissed. And he went after Miro right out the gate. Miro like suplexed Archer into the crowd at one point, which was amazing. And it really shows how like badass they're making Miro look again. He had an awesome spinning wheel kick. That I'd never really seen him do before. Looked great. Nice savage yes kicks. Archer stops him. Connects with a black hole slam. They called it something else. But I can't remember off top. But I'm always going to call it the black hole slam. Thanks to Abyss. Then Jake Roberts comes out of the entryway. He supposedly brings the snake out. I don't think it was ever in there. But it was all part of the angle. Miro grabs the bag after knocking Jake down. Throws the snake all the way to the entry ramp, which looks awesome. It made Miro look even more like a badass. Miro goes for a kick, but Archer stops him, hits him with a choke slam. Miro tries to take over. Archer hits a nice looking pounce. That move I haven't seen much done outside of Keith Lee, but damn, Archer made that thing look good against such a big man. Miro eventually wins, locks in his submission hold, and Lance Hoyt, Lance Archer, excuse me, tap, passes out, I should say. Ref stoppage, great stuff there. Again, makes Miro look like a legitimate badass. He was able to beat somebody like that right out the gate in his reign. Three and a half stars, or links of Boone, excuse me. Fine match, didn't need the Jake Roberts spots if you weren't going to give the belt to Archer. Now we get to Dr. Britt Baker, DMD versus Hikaru Shida. This could have been a main event on probably any other pay-per-view. Because so much hype was behind it. And this is like a triple main event type show. And I was glad this was the third to last match. Britt Baker wore NWO Wolfpack-esque attire. These two back and forth both went for their finishers. Nothing doing. Some pinfall exchanges. Sheeta took control with a bow and arrow, then hit a body scissors on her. Britt at one point gets thrown into the barricade. And the way it sounded, yeesh. And these two just go crazy. You know, throughout the match, everything goes the way you'd expect it to. Britt continues to cheat, tease the lockjaw. Sheeta moves out the way multiple times. And Sheeta slows the pace down a real good bit with three straight knees, starts raking at her face. And it makes me think that she's actually going to win the match. And I'm convinced of it because of the fact that they are starting to build this possibly as a heel turn for Sheeta because she's going to defend it by any means necessary. We see like a double turn because you want to see. You know, Britt Baker win and get over, but no, it looked like things just stayed the same in terms of how people were aligned in this match. She at one point went for a stretch muffler, but Baker reached reaches the ropes. Baker takes over with an air raid crash for two and a half. She can't quite get in the lockjaw yet. She wound up going for a avalanche Death Valley driver, but Baker gets out of it and does. But then you see she a little bit later get a superplex for two, not long after. Sheeta went for it yet again. It's like you never go for things multiple times. Just a big lesson there. Baker rolls her up for two. Sheeta looked at, locked in the stretch muffler again. 
Rebel forces her to break the hole, but the miscommunication leads to Baker getting hit with a crutch, which is a two-and-a-half count. Rebel gets ejected a little bit later, and while the ref's distracted, Baker hits Sheeta with a super kick and the women's title, and then a stomp on the belt itself for 2.9. Sheeta hits the running knee, and it's like, oh, no, it is going to be over. She's not winning. Nope. Baker kicks out, then finally locks in the lock jaw, and we have a new AEW Women's Champion. This was a fantastic masterpiece of women's wrestling. Four and a half links of Buddha for me, bar none. Favorite match of the night. And I want to be surprised. And again, I, I shouldn't be surprised because some people will always have differing opinions, different takes for different shows and for different matches. Because I've got my own taste. I'm sure all of you out there have your thoughts as well. I'll go ahead and run through the poll real quick because we got the final results in around noon this noon today. And the thoughts were thumbs up 85%, 15% thumbs in the middle. No thumbs down, which is a great thing to think about. Meanwhile, 50% of the vote went in favor of Omega, Pac, and Orange Cassidy's match, while while 28% was a faraway second in Britt Baker and Hikaru Shida. What the hell? I think that Britt Baker, Hikaru Shida was a far better match than Omega, Pac, and Orange Cassidy. And I'll talk about why in just a minute. So we'll get to the Darby Allen and Sting versus Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky. Darby just immediately goes after these two. And it is just a freaking great match from start to finish, especially the stuff with Page and Darby. At one point, Page throws Darby into the crowd, into his family, which was impressive. Basically, yeets him in a real... I, I love those kind of spots. And I wish he would have done that with more, I'd say, like distance between the fans and the wall, because that could have turned out like very bad very quickly. Like It was Bam Bam Bigelow to Spike Dudley-esque, but obviously both these guys aren't... One guy's not the size of Bam Bam, so it looked even more impressive. And I love that. Darby got back in on the count of nine on his own because... Sting was trying to help him get back in the ring, but nothing. Darby Riley hit a stunner on Page, and then that sets up the hot tag for Sting. He goes all out. He winds up hitting a code red. It was like a modified code red, where it was a little bit more half speed, but still pretty damn cool. Really great spot with Sting locking in the Scorpion Deathlock on Page, and Sky locked in the heel hook. And both of these guys who are in the hole are just slapping each other like crazy, like that. Sting wins the match with the Scorpion Death Drop on Scorpio Sky. Three and a half links of Boudin. Solid match, but could he use a few more minutes and maybe Allen gets the win instead of a vet going over? But Sting really proved that he still got it. Early on in the match, Sky hit a suplex on Sting, but he immediately no-sold it. Hits a crossbody off the poker chips. Absolutely was blown away by this match. And Sting, I gotta, I gotta give him a little bit of a... A little bit of that. Because Sting absolutely kicked ass. And there's a huge Sting mark growing up. It was great to see him get back in the ring and actually have some good matches from start to finish. A good match, start to finish. Loved it. Now we get to the AEW World Championship match. A three-way between Pac, Orange Cassidy, and Kenny Omega. Kenny slaps Bryce Rimsburg around just before the match starts. And then Omega cheap, cheap shots Cassidy. Becomes a straight-up one versus one to begin between Kenny and Pac. We get a double crossbody, and Cassidy casually goes for a quick pin, which I like that as well. Like The fact they did the double down, and then Cassidy just nonchalantly tries to go for the pin, nothing. Tries to go for the pockets, but both Pac and Kenny stop him, and he eventually goes for a double Hurricane Rana that looks great. Then a Toby suicide on Pac. Pac hits a Hurricane Rana of his own on Kenny, and an Asai Moonsault to take control he starts taking over Orange Cassidy now, really dominates before Kenny gets back in the ring. He takes down Pac, and then a backstab on Cassidy. Like the fact that he was focusing on both these guys, trying to take care of business. Lots of cool spots here. Cassidy comes close, hitting a beach break, and it turns into a pinfall exchange. It ends after a 450 splash by Pac. Wow, that was cool. Then Omega hits a Snapdragon suplex on Pac and Orange. Then... He hits a V-trigger on Orange, but Pac dodged and hit a German. Omega throws Cassie in the way and hits a V-trigger, which looked awesome again. 
Then he goes for another dragon suplex, but Pac gets out. Omega hits a vicious lariat in response. Another V-trigger on Cassidy. Tries for the dragon, but Orange puts his hand, a super dragon suplex, I should say. But Orange puts his hands in his pockets to block the move. And Pac hits a German suplex instead on Omega while Orange is still on top. And it's a senton to the outside. Omega hits Tiger Driver 98 for two and a half. He teases a one-winged angel like a couple times here. And it was so damn good here. Pac hits a super falcon arrow. Cassie throws him out. He gets a 2.9 on that. Which, again, nobody can ever kick out of that. And this was so freaking good all the way through. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Omega wound up winning with a crucifix pin to retain the AEW title. Getting the pin on Orange Cassidy. Four links to boot and match. Great until the finish involving Don Callis. It was pointless. And just there was so much going on. And triple threat matches will always be an interesting experiment. I just couldn't. I can never really get into those. Just in my mind. Just in my mind. Now let's get to the main event. Stadium Stampede number two, Electric Boogaloo. The Pinnacle versus the Inner Circle. If the Inner Circle loses, they must break up forever. Pinnacle comes out in a limousine. MGF cuts a quick promo in the Inner Circle. Then they all rappel down the stadium signage like it's Sting in the 1990s, which apparently was helped by John Wick, the stunt coordinator for the movie, which in and of itself was badass, but this match was so damn cool. And the way he did a lot of this stuff, because MJF retreated into the limo early on. And it makes you think that the rest of the Pinnacle's in there. Nope, FTR's truck shows up, and the rest of them are in there. So it's basically, they're all brawling themselves. There's a fire on the field. I don't get it. It's never, really, it's never talked about again, by the way. They show it once, and it's never brought up again. They fight, uh, Spears and Guevara start brawling in the ring. And the bell rings, which is weird. But Guevara goes for the shooting star press. He misses. Spears is the blue thunderbomb. MGF finally gets out of the limo. But Jericho's right there. And they just start fighting. It almost looks like he's wearing jorts, but it's the knee pads. FTR hits pocket sand on, on I believe it was Ortiz. Again, there were so many different cuts and jumps. At this point, they start to go towards like the comedy stuff. A lot like what they did last year. With MGF running away from Jericho, which you can just cue up the Benny Hill music at this point. And then Jericho beats him up, and MGF takes over. He throws hot coffee in Jericho's face, and they had a funny spot with the phone, like in halftime heat. And then Jericho yelled at MGF with the megaphone, and I was cracking the hell up on that. And they helped Jericho by throwing footballs, and then Jericho hits MGF with a laptop, then throws him into a table, basically puts him in a chair, throws the chair, pushes the chair all the way over towards his guardrail. MJF flips over, goes through the table. That was awesome. Then we cut to Hager and Wardlow. They're fighting in the freezer. They go, they brawl around. Wardlow basically spears Hager into the wall. Like, it's SmackDown 2. And it's like, Hager should be done. That's it. That's all. Like, pin him in the match. But no, we got to keep going. Guevara's looking for spears. And the way they shot this spot was amazing. With spears sitting around like a million chairs. The way they... they they, they panned over and zoomed in. Possibly some of the best like shooting of angles I've ever seen with AEW. Then later on, they're going at it. Like Spears eventually hits Rey Mysterio's spot, basically does the lawn dart to Guevara. These two, amazing match and a brawl between these two. Guevara uses like speed and parkour like we had never seen before, which is really good. At one point, Spears throws a pair of bolt cutters. And Sean's an idiot for doing that because he let Guevara, he handcuffed Guevara. The bolt cutters are just literally right by him, which further proves that Sean Spears is a complete geek. FTR, proud and powerful, in a, basically it's like a club inside the venue. And they have a couple drinks. And then Conan's there playing the music. And he changed the music up to basically be like the fight riff. And it was so cool. These two brawl in the club. And I pop for the fact you have Conan. Because one, it's a, it's continuity towards LAX. But more importantly, it's continuity to the fact that, you know, he was at the Vegas thing earlier. I would say earlier in the year, but this was after, I believe, this is like in 
late November, early December, because this is after full gear, if I'm not mistaken. They did that. They ran that angle. Then you have MGF and Jericho. They're still brawling around the Jags front office. Shad Khan, they have a cardboard cutout of him, which I pop for in and of itself. Then he stapled a thank you card on MGF's face, ripped it off. That was fantastic. MGF at one point hits a pile driver on the table for two. He finds a hammer and almost bashes Jericho's arm, but Chris escapes, and then he grabs Floyd, which is conveniently hiding in that office, which it's still, again, it's wrestling. you got to take yourself out of it every now and again, but he bashes MGF with it. He's busted open, throws MGF into the glass. He's busted open even more. Spears thinks he's getting away. Nope. He's being chased by a motorcycle gang, which is the Inner Circle Motorcycle Gang, which I don't remember that ever happening. But okay, I'll live with that stuff. Jericho and MGF brawl towards the fans, and MGF gets crotched on the railing. Ouch. And then MGF almost does a new jack. Him of Vic Grimes tries throwing him off the balcony. Nope. Jericho power bombs him into, I guess, what was a table. Spears pops up again. But then Guevara chases him with the golf cart, runs him over with it. I was like, here we go again with that stuff. Okay. And then these two start fighting in the ring. And Guevara redeems himself after losing last year. Hitting the go to hell. Pin Sean Spears after curb stomping him into the chair. Then a 630 to keep the inner circle alive. I would never normally give cinematic matches a star rating. But damn it, I was sports entertained. This is a four Lincoln Boonham match. A really good main event. And overall, a phenomenal show. It deserves all the thumbs up that we got on the Twitter poll. I'm sure a lot of people loved it as well. This was absolutely one of my favorite AEW pay-per-views in a long time. And especially after what happened at Revolution, they absolutely needed this. Nothing fell short. Yeah, the the mystery was an under, underwhelming, but people have to be, you know, spending time. They have to spend time and realize, hey, we got to do things a certain way. We can't have all these huge surprises because it's damn near impossible to do. So people just got to relax. That's all I got to say on that front. But appreciate everybody for listening to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. We'll talk to you down the road.